The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. A Scottish mother and daughter uncovered a horrifying conspiracy within the pharmaceutical industry. A drug company literally being paid to kill participants in a clinical stem cell trial. And the government was in on the cover-up. But because of an ironclad confidentiality clause, participants and their families couldn't tell anyone anything without facing a 20-year prison sentence. The would-be whistleblowers would keep their secret as long as they could, but in May 2013, the mother and daughter were discovered bleeding to death in a cheap hotel just miles from their home. Join me now as we take a look into a cruel and elaborate hoax that devastated an entire family, ending in tragedy. You'll learn the motivation behind the twisted scam and the lengths a con would go for the final payoff. It's been estimated that more than one-third of all newly married couples met online using dating websites, apps, or other social media. And researchers predict those numbers will reach as high as 50% over the next decade. Now, if you haven't met someone online, you at least know of someone who has. And while we've all heard of cases where the outcome ends in a fairy tale wedding, many also end in complete disaster. Sometimes a nightmare that never seems like it'll end. Meeting strangers online is always a gamble, as was the case for Michael McDonough, a Royal Air Force corporal in his early 30s, stationed in Lossiemouth Air Force Base on the northeastern coast of Scotland. Looking for love, Michael thought he'd try his luck setting up a profile on an online dating website, Plenty of Fish, and it appeared he'd hit the jackpot when he received a message in May 2012. Stephanie Wilson was a young, attractive blonde in her early 20s, studying at the University of Edinburgh, or at least, that's what the profile stated. Right away, Michael was taken by her photo and responded immediately. Right off the bat, it was a whirlwind romance, with the two texting so often, it's hard to imagine them having any time to accomplish anything else. With 5,000 messages being swapped in the month of June alone, soon the messages turned into phone conversations, and it was clear Michael had fallen for Stephanie, or at least fallen for the idea of her. By now, Michael considered Stephanie his girlfriend and wanted to meet the wonderful woman he'd met online, in person, and she agreed. But just before their date, Michael was contacted by Stephanie's mother. She had terrible news. Stephanie had been injured in a violent altercation with her sister's ex-boyfriend, Jason. 
and the injuries were serious, including a broken jaw, arm, cheekbone, and head injury that was causing her brain to swell. Or at least, that's what he was told. The severity of the injuries meant Stephanie needed to be moved to a hospital for plastic surgery, where they'd also be keeping a close eye on the swelling to her brain. But despite the seriousness of her condition, Stephanie continued messaging Michael from her hospital bed. At the same time, Michael also began getting to know the rest of Stephanie's family, including her parents and three stepsisters, all of them calling and texting him. And while all of this was going on, Stephanie's health continued to deteriorate and she suffered a heart attack. Three, actually with Michael even receiving a photo from the operating room showing the heart surgery. Before long, Michael was also communicating with Stephanie's doctor, Dr. Collins, as well as her primary nurse, Ashley. But just when all the news seemed to be getting worse, Stephanie was selected to participate in a clinical trial for a groundbreaking new stem cell treatment. A treatment created by a pharmaceutical company called Biotech Scotland. This was good news for Stephanie because the treatment looked extremely promising in helping her recover from her injuries. For Michael, it was bad news because it meant he wouldn't be able to visit his fiance in the hospital. Due to the secrecy surrounding the clinical trial, Stephanie had to sign a confidentiality agreement with the pharmaceutical company, with one part of the agreement placing severe limitations on who was allowed to visit their patients. Seems strange? Well, that's because it was, but we'll get to that. By now, Michael was desperate to see Stephanie and support her in any way possible. He still hadn't actually seen her in person, but Stephanie and her family had an idea that might solve that problem. They believed if Michael and Stephanie were engaged, Biotech might allow him to visit. Dutifully, Michael purchased a beautiful ring with a white diamond square for £1,870, almost $3,000 back in 2012, and sent it to Stephanie. Still fighting for her life in the hospital, at least for now, they were officially engaged, and a close-up photo of the ring on Stephanie's finger was sent to Michael, making it official. Tragically, however, Michael would never get the chance to see the ring on his fiancée's finger in person because Stephanie Wilson didn't exist. None of them did. In fact, the only person in this entire story so far who actually existed in real life was Michael, not Dr. Collins, Nurse Ashley, any of Stephanie's entire family. Absolutely none of them were real. I know what you're thinking. How's this even possible? If they didn't exist, who was sending all the messages? Who was making all the phone calls? Well, as of right now, you already know more than Michael did at the time. Because Michael had no idea that none of these people were real. In fact, it would take him nearly an entire year and a tragedy beyond understanding before he finally learned the truth. Why? Because Michael was a victim to one of the most staggering, audacious, and elaborate catfishing cons we've ever heard of. He'd spoken to most of the invented characters on the phone 
and had massive text threads with each of them. But it was all orchestrated and conducted by one solitary person, a woman, a lonely, heavyset 30-year-old bartender and virtuoso con woman named Lindsay Cotton. And as crazy as this story already sounds so far, trust us, it's only the beginning. But before we get too much further into this crazy case, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Slosberg, criminologists who study females who've been victims of crime, those who've committed them, and professionals involved in the criminal justice system. They're also the hosts of the podcast, Women in Crime. Earlier this year, we tossed around the idea of covering a case together that's centered on a woman who not only committed a crime, but is the worst of the worst. The hosts from Women in Crime found this case especially bizarre, and when we learned about some of the details ourselves, we knew our listeners would be as blown away as we were. Dr. Slosberg, what intrigued you most about this case? There's been several cases in the last several years that have to do with catfishing, and it's been quite popular in the media. However, this case is much different than just a normal catfishing case. I think it's rare to see a woman as manipulative or as really diabolical as Lindsay Cotton. And the length she would go to get what she wanted is just something we don't see very often. And Dr. Sachs, what initially stood out to you? What stands out about this case, Tyler, is almost everything. There are crimes that we can understand as human beings. We don't necessarily agree with them, but we can explain the behavior. In this particular crime and with this particular offender, and with I would say with the steps, how complex her crimes were, it almost seems that the crimes she perpetrated were unfathomable. And I think that's what makes it even more interesting is not that she perpetrated a crime. The initial crime, we probably can understand, but it was the great lengths that she went to to keep this crime going that becomes almost unexplicable. And it really begs the question of why. And I think that's what drew you know me to this case and what will draw other people to this case. Why would she do this? Now let's get back to Lindsay Cotton. When we last left off, Lindsay had launched a full-on catfish campaign focused on Michael. The motivation behind the campaign, we'll get to later. But first, let's go back to the engagement ring Michael thought he'd sent to Stephanie. Here's Dr. Sachs and Slosberg to tell you more. Right around the same time Michael McDonough was receiving a photo of the engagement ring on Stephanie's hand, something strange was going on nearly 200 miles away in a tiny Scottish village called Addywell. Lindsay Cotton, a local bartender, uploaded a photo of her personal Facebook page. It was a photo of a white square diamond engagement ring. She began telling her friends that she was engaged to a Royal Air Force Corporal named Michael McDonough. And of course, everyone believed her. Why wouldn't they? One of the people who'd heard the news through the grapevine was Lindsay's niece, an attractive young blonde woman in her early 20s who had very little to do with her auntie. Her name was Stephanie McLaren. But if Michael had ever met her on the street, he would have recognized her instantly as Stephanie Wilson, his fiance, because it was her photos Lindsay had been using this entire time to snare her prey. But duping a man into buying an expensive ring wasn't Lindsay's endgame. 
In fact, her scheme had nothing to do with jewelry or gifts or money at all. For her, it was about love. Lindsay Cotton was a 31-year-old single mother of two children. She tried finding love before on Plenty of Fish, but would later claim that she received too many insults from men. Insults that mostly stemmed from her weight, which was something she'd become extremely self-conscious about. Her father had died in 2004, and she had an extremely difficult time coping with the event, even suffering lasting PTSD from it. This, combined with her body image concerns, gave her constant anxiety and extremely low self-esteem. And because of this, she'd become a bit of a hermit, isolating herself and living vicariously through characters she invented on the internet, something it turned out she was extremely talented at. But despite being reclusive, at the end of the day, what Lindsay wanted most was a real relationship. In order to do that, Lindsay needed a way to insert herself, the real Lindsay Cotton, into Michael McDonough's life. And she did that by becoming a supporting character in the convoluted fantasy world she created for him. And it worked like a charm, almost. Using the story of Stephanie's hospitalization and secretive stem cell trial as a springboard, Lindsay began phase two of her master plan, making real-world contact with Michael. Lindsay then reached out to Michael as herself, claiming to be one of Stephanie's best friends, something fake Stephanie confirmed by telling him Lindsay was like a mother figure to her. He was also told Lindsay had been granted power of attorney, which meant she was the main point of contact regarding Stephanie's treatments. Stephanie encouraged Michael to become close with Lindsay, and if he ever questioned or doubted her for even a second, the entire fake cast of characters were quick to corroborate whatever she said. Before long, Lindsay was able to do one thing that Michael was never able to do, meet her online crush in real life. On the day Lindsay met Michael, she was wearing the engagement ring he had bought for Stephanie, but Michael didn't even notice. In August 2012, fake Stephanie even convinced Michael to take Lindsay and her children on a two-week vacation together to Newcastle. And it wouldn't be long before Michael made the decision to move in with Lindsay and the kids at their home in Adderwell. The move allowed him to stay more up-to-date on Stephanie's condition since Lindsay was a hospital's point of contact regarding her treatment. Her long con to ensnare Michael in the real world was proceeding according to plan. But in Fantasyland, the world she created for Michael, things were getting absolutely crazy, outlandish, and downright unbelievable. But at the time, Michael did believe every single word of it. As time went on, Michael continued receiving thousands of text messages each month from a cast of imaginary characters that grew to a dozen, all created by Lindsay. She'd effectively designed a self-referencing ecosystem where one fake identity was able to validate and verify claims from another fake identity, but always at the very center of the fantasy was Stephanie Wilson, Michael's young, beautiful fiance, still in the hospital fighting for her life. As diabolical as all this was, it's hard to ignore the sheer mastery necessary to pull off such a complicated and elaborate hoax. In total, Lindsay used no less than 15 different mobile SIM cards, multiple phones, a Blackberry, two laptops, as well as two separate tablets. And over the summer of 2012, nearly 15 
thousand messages were exchanged between Michael and Lindsay's fantasy cast. To give you some context, that's one text message every 10 minutes, every hour of every day for three straight months. Now that's commitment. But how'd she do it? How could one person pretend to be so many people successfully? For starters, each character had their own phone number, mannerisms, and during actual phone calls, their voices were unique to their characters, all performed by Lindsay herself. And done well enough, Michael never grew suspicious. Lindsay's con job was incredibly sophisticated, terribly complex, and utterly convincing. Have you ever heard the old axiomatic riddle, how do you eat an elephant, with the answer, one bite at a time? It's a riddle that basically lays as the foundation for numerous self-help and motivational guides, simply meaning that large goals are accomplished by taking many small steps to victory, but there can also be found a darker meaning hidden in this bit of wisdom, because this very principle is the same way cult leaders convince their followers to accept preposterous belief systems one bite at a time. It's also this exact same principle that's at the heart of every successful long con. With every text and with every call, Michael was taking one more small bite of the elephant. But if the bites Lindsay had been feeding Michael this far were only appetizers, that meant she was preparing to serve him the main course. So far, we've only touched the tip of the iceberg in the wild story Lindsay Cotton had been weaving for Michael. Now what you're about to hear is what Michael McDonough believed was actually happening. Michael was increasingly desperate to visit Stephanie in the hospital, something their engagement was supposed to have helped facilitate. But Biotech Scotland kept moving their patients from hospital to hospital, apparently a necessary part of their secret stem cell therapy. And because of this, Stephanie never knew which hospital she was going to be at, or for how long, making in-person visits impossible to schedule. Of course, this calculated inconvenience was simply an excuse created by Lindsay as to why Michael could never actually see his fiancée. But then something sinister started happening. Dr. Collins from Biotech attempted to poison Stephanie, and her family soon discovered that this was no accident. In fact, according to Lindsay, instead of trying to save Stephanie's life, the doctor was actively trying to kill her for money. And this is where Lindsay's story becomes even more ludicrous. She told Michael that Biotech Scotland would receive a payout of £1 million if every single patient in their clinical trial died. And because Stephanie was part of the trial, they had one million reasons to secretly and deliberately kill her. Worst of all, it would become obvious that the government was doing its part to brush the scandal under the rug, a conspiracy of silence and a massive cover-up. Michael was also told and believed that because of the supposed confidentiality agreement Stephanie had signed, if he told anyone about it, he would be sent to prison. 
As you can imagine, the entire ordeal caused Michael serious personal distress. His medical fitness deteriorated so much, he eventually quit his job with the Royal Air Force entirely. Taking care of an imaginary fiancé he'd never officially met began consuming every aspect of Michael's life. And tragically, Michael's real-life family was also becoming wrapped up in Lindsay's sick fantasy. Here's Dr. Saxon Slosberg to tell you more. Margaret McDonough was a 52-year-old divorced mother of five adult children, including Michael. In recent years, she'd become a foster parent and was currently fostering two young children. And as someone with such a generous nature and a heart for caregiving, it's no surprise that Margaret took compassion on her son Michael's predicament. Margaret's best friend was her own 23-year-old daughter, Nicola, with whom she had an extremely close relationship. And it seems that Nicola was following in her mother's footsteps when it came to caring for others. Nicola was involved with an independent living charity out of Glasgow called Cosgrove Care and had just graduated with honors from the University of the West of Scotland with her degree in social work. After applying for jobs and securing a promising interview, Nicola made plans with her friends to celebrate their graduations by taking a vacation together to Basel, Switzerland. Through Michael, they'd learned about the ongoing saga of his fiancée, Stephanie. And naturally, Margaret and Nicola were sympathetic to his situation. But as time progressed and the real Lindsay became closer to Michael and his family, she became a regular visitor to their home in Paisley outside Glasgow. During these visits, Lindsay regaled the family with tales of woe about how dangerously sick Stephanie was and eventually telling them about Biotech's murderous plot to kill her. Lindsay told Margaret and Nicola that the only hope for Stephanie was through the European Court of Human Rights, something she'd also convinced Michael of using fictitious lawyers, judges, and government officials. In order to involve the Human Rights Court, Lindsay told Margaret and Nicola that they needed to write official letters to the court, describing the mental anguish that Michael was experiencing because of biotech. Naturally, both mother and daughter agreed and wrote their letters supporting Michael. But Lindsay had other plans for these letters and used them as a weapon to begin driving a wedge between Michael and his family. Nicola received a letter in the mail supposedly from Stephanie, and when she opened it, she was appalled by what she read. Your big brother had asked for your help, and it's become apparent that you could not be bothered to give it a go. Enjoy your life, Nicola, while I struggle with mine. Fake Stephanie wasn't satisfied by the efforts Margaret and Nicola were making, and naturally, Michael was inclined to sympathize with the opinions of his fiance. Isolating a victim from their family and friends is a common tactic used by con artists, cult leaders, and sociopaths all over the world. And once Lindsay saw the cracks beginning to form in Michael's relationship with Margaret and Nicola, she drove the wedge deeper and broke them apart. According to the rules of Lindsay's fantasy world, Michael, Margaret, and Nicola were now all subject to the same strict confidentiality clause. If they told anyone about Stephanie or biotech, they would be severely punished by the government, or worse. Nicola, however, had revealed the saga to her recent ex-boyfriend. And when Lindsay found out about it, she went nuclear. And so did Michael. And so did the entire cast of fake characters. The mythical confidentiality agreement had been breached, and Margaret and Nicola were responsible. In messages to Stephanie, Michael was absolutely apoplectic. 
He told her he'd never be able to forgive his family for what they had done, putting him at risk of legal trouble and worse, putting Stephanie's life in further danger at the hands of biotech. Speaking about Margaret, Stephanie responded, she knew full well what she was doing. I can't forgive your mom and I want your sister to be punished. She can't be trusted and she thinks nothing of destroying people's lives. Inside, she's a mess. On May 7th, 2013, Lindsay paid the McDonough's a visit at their home. Keep in mind, Lindsay first contacted Michael as Stephanie in May 2012. She'd been running her twisted long con for almost exactly one year by this point. During the visit, Lindsay laid out the disastrous consequences Margaret and Nicola were facing for breaching the confidentiality agreement. Because they'd each committed a serious crime, she told them they were each facing 20-year prison sentences. After the meeting, Margaret and Nicola were utterly devastated, terrified and in tears. Margaret herself was so overcome, she became physically sick. They began receiving messages from Stephanie's fictitious lawyer named Callum, who had become by now a staple character in Lindsay's fantasy world. According to Callum, he believed he could make the charges go away for a fee of £5,000. The McDonough's, however, were fairly cash poor at the moment. Margaret only had £239 in her bank account and a Vauxhall Astra worth around 4000 Even if she sold her car and emptied her accounts, it wouldn't be enough to cover it. So Lindsay, acting as Callum, suggested a cheaper option, fleeing the country. Callum claimed he could provide both Margaret and Nicola with fake passports if they paid him 500 pounds. Lindsay had effectively given the women three options. Option A, go to prison for 20 years. Option B, sell everything to hire a lawyer. Or option C, flee the country using fake identities never to return. She knew they'd never choose option A, but if they chose option B, Lindsay would make a quick 5,000 pounds. And if they chose option C, well, she'd make 500 and successfully isolate Michael from his family. But there was another option that Lindsay never considered. Three days later, on March 10th, tragedy struck at a budget hotel in Greenock, a town just 17 miles away from the McDonough's home in Paisley. Around 7 a.m., a guest at the hotel was walking down the second-floor hallway when they saw an unimaginable sight. Nicola was lying unconscious on the floor outside of room 25, covered in her own blood, still pouring from a slash on her left arm. Hotel staff then discovered Margaret inside the room in a similar state, unconscious, with a horrific cut in her left arm. Immediately, the McDonough's were raced to a nearby hospital, and for the moment, they were both alive, but just barely. Sadly, Margaret would be pronounced dead later the same day, while Nicola clung to life. Her father, Thomas, never left her bedside, and police waited for her to regain consciousness, hoping to question her to help them understand what had happened in that hotel room. Nicola, however, never regained consciousness and succumbed to her injuries three days later, on May 13th. The McDonough's deaths were incomprehensible to those who'd known them. Nicola was excited about her upcoming vacation to Switzerland, and Margaret had just recently adopted one of her foster children. Police were equally baffled by the mystery surrounding their deaths, but once they started the investigation, 
They soon learned that Margaret and Nicola were alone in their room when their injuries took place, ruling out the possibility of a third person being involved, at least directly. As the days went on, more pieces of the puzzle began coming together, and it wouldn't take long for detectives to realize it was one of those insane 5,000-piece puzzles. The most important clue came when it was discovered. Margaret had made a trip to a lawyer's office the day before her death. She was preparing her will. She wanted her estate to be split amongst her three sons. And strangely, Nicola wasn't included in the will. Law enforcement realized that the most likely explanation was that Margaret and Nicola had entered into a suicide pact together. But why'd they done it was anyone's guess. If anything, their findings had raised as many questions as they'd answered. Why did they check into a hotel just miles from their own home? Why had Nicola left the room and ended up in the hallway? Sadly, the only two people who will ever know exactly what took place in that hotel room are now deceased. Perhaps knowing police would soon be on to her, Lindsay made a final sick and twisted bid to get the one thing she'd been after the whole time, a relationship with Michael. On the day after Nicholas' passing, Michael received a series of messages from Stephanie, encouraging him to let Lindsay into his bed. Stephanie was still clinging to life in the hospital and insisted that if Michael let Lindsay sleep in his bed, it would somehow help lower Stephanie's blood pressure and thus help improve her health. Sounds like a strange request, right? You're probably hoping this is where Michael finally clued in something foul was going on, but he didn't because Lindsay had been so successful at getting Michael to take bite after bite until she'd fed him the entire elephant. Now she was only asking him to take one more bite. So for the next two nights, Michael and Lindsay shared a bed. Although both of them kept their clothes on, Lindsay laid next to Michael, cuddling and kissing him. This would be the closest Lindsay would ever get to Michael McDonough, and probably a moment he'd regret for the rest of his life once he found out the truth. On May 22nd, a little more than a week after Nicholas' passing, Police arrived at Lindsay's home to arrest her. Police never stated who tipped them off, but after her arrest, all her phones, tablets, and computers used to carry out the elaborate hoax were confiscated. And for a while at least, Lindsay denied any wrongdoing. But once her phone records, which she attempted to destroy, were forensically analyzed, Lindsay's entire fantastical saga was laid to bear. Two years later, in 2015, Lindsay pled guilty to fraud and falsely threatening the McDonough's with prison time. Surprisingly, she never faced any charges for Margaret or Nicholas' deaths. During Lindsay's sentencing, the judge called the more than 30,000 messages between Lindsay and Michael staggering and sentenced her to three years in prison. You invented you created fictitious persons, not just the false online dating profile 
and persona in the name of a Stephanie Wilson or Johnston. No, you created a series of fictitious persons to dupe the McDonough's. None of these persons existed. They were all fictitious, a fantasy, a lie. Your false threats that Margaret McDonough and Nicola McDonough would be imprisoned for 20 years should be condemned by any reasonable person. It is clear from the terms of the agreed Crown narrative that you were determined both Margaret McDonough and Nicola McDonough should be, quotes, punished, quotes. You wanted both of them, quotes, out of the way, quotes, no matter what it took to do that. Whatever your motives may have been, your conduct was wholly unjustified, wholly unjustifiable, wicked, and as I have already stated, you have been cruel to a number of persons who were vulnerable. Lindsay's guilty plea spared the remaining McDonough family from having to go through an entire trial that was scheduled to last four entire weeks. More than 150 witnesses had been prepared by the prosecution, including Lindsay's own children. But there was one witness quite unlike all the others who was prepared to testify against Lindsay, a man who had deep and intimate understanding of her operation and who could testify to the depths that Lindsay was willing to go to manipulate, defraud, and con her victims. Because before there was Michael McDonough, there was Gordon Johnstone. In 2011, the year before Lindsay ensnared Michael, Gordon met Lindsay through his neighbor. As they introduced themselves and began having a conversation, Lindsay told him that her niece had seen him around the neighborhood and had actually developed a crush on him. She then showed him a photo of an attractive, young blonde woman named Stephanie. And just like Michael, Gordon was rather smitten. And also just like Michael, Gordon was being conned. Lindsay gave Gordon the fictitious woman's number, and before long, Gordon was bombarded with hundreds of text messages that were really being sent by Lindsay. Every time he tried to meet his new paramour in person, something always came up. There was always an excuse. About a month later, real-life Lindsay called Gordon at 1 a.m. in a panic and asked Gordon to come to her house. Stephanie, she said, had been in a terrible car wreck and was now in the hospital. When Gordon arrived, he consoled and comforted Lindsay. Afterward, she invited him in to spend the night, which he agreed to. And then one thing led to another. The next day, Lindsay supposedly confessed to her niece about what had happened with Gordon. Naturally, the niece became enraged and called Gordon on the phone to break things off. He had no idea that the voice on the other end was really Lindsay. After that, fake Stephanie was out and real Lindsay was in, which meant Lindsay could start a real relationship with Gordon. And according to Gordon, it started out perfectly. Lindsay's desire to manipulate and con didn't stop just because she had gotten what she'd wanted. Instead, it appears that she had some compulsive motivation to keep increasing the insanity. After a couple of months, Lindsay told him that she was pregnant with another man's baby, a result of her previous relationship, she had claimed. According to Gordon, Lindsay's size made it impossible for him to realize that the pregnancy was actually a lie. By this point, she'd also convinced him to quit his job, promising to cover all of the bills herself. According to her, she had ties to some pretty rough gangsters and made enough money for the both of them, performing various illegal activities for the gang. But here's where it gets interesting. Because of the dangerous nature of her business, 
Gordon, she said, was a potential target for one of the rival gangs. And for his own safety, Lindsay began locking Gordon inside of her house whenever she went out. And this continued for nearly three whole months before Gordon got fed up and decided to leave her. Sensing a breakup was coming, Lindsay told him she'd had a miscarriage, a lie which had the desired effect, with Gordon deciding to stick with her for a while longer. But the straw that broke the camel's back was when Lindsay came up with a plan for Gordon to rob the bar where she worked. She'd sorely miscalculated how far she could push him. Wisely, Gordon refused to commit a crime for Lindsay, but even more wisely, he refused to continue their relationship. She then tried to get him to come back by first telling him she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. Then she told him her daughter had leukemia, but Gordon was resolved to leave. Post-breakup life for Gordon was miserable. He constantly received death threats, ostensibly from the dangerous people Lindsay was involved with. He had no job, was homeless, and having a mental breakdown. According to Gordon, he'd become a paranoid wreck, afraid of his own shadow. He also became depressed and began self-harming. It was only by consulting with his family and his doctor that he was able to find the help he so desperately needed. Eventually, Gordon got back on the right track and began a healthy relationship with the new woman. But Lindsay wasn't quite done with Gordon just yet. She started sending threats and harassing phone messages. And then all of a sudden, it stopped. Life went back to normal. And it wasn't until Gordon heard the news about Margaret and Nicola's bizarre suicide pact that it all made sense. The harassment had stopped because Lindsay had found a new victim. Gordon told a reporter for the Sunday Post, I know how far she can push you. Like her later victims, I considered ending it all too. It was only by telling my family and doctors I needed help that I was able to stay strong. I know what poor Margaret and Nicola would have felt like. Although Lindsay was only sentenced to three years in prison, it seemed fate, or karma, or whatever kind of poetic justice you believe in, had something else in mind. After serving only six months, Lindsay was discovered in her cell, gasping for air, on March 16, 2016. Immediately, she was rushed to the hospital, but was pronounced dead the following day. Her official cause of death was a pulmonary embolism. In the end, Lindsay's cruel manipulations left a devastating wake of destruction. The McDonough's were unquestionably the most devastated by what she'd done. But there were still other lives that had been changed by the events. At the beginning, we mentioned Lindsay had uploaded a photo of a white diamond engagement ring Michael thought he'd given to Stephanie. Lindsay posted the photo on her Facebook page, claiming to be engaged to Michael herself. This too was a ruse Lindsay maintained to her family and friends for an entire year-long ordeal. She was also somehow able to convince Michael to more or less go along with it, and everyone believed them. Lindsay's mother, Isabel, was shell-shocked when she learned the truth surrounding her diabolical daughter. Thinking all along, she'd met someone wonderful. To her, Michael and Lindsay appeared to be in a loving relationship, most of all engaged. She saw how much time Michael spent with Lindsay's kids and pictured them as a happy family. It wasn't until the day Lindsay was arrested when Isabel learned the truth. 
Lindsay's children wouldn't find out about their mother's lies until they read it in the newspaper. Lindsay's niece, Stephanie McLaren, whose pictures were used to con both Michael and Gordon, also had her life turned upside down when police began investigating her potential involvement in Lindsay's fraud. Fortunately, they sussed out fairly soon. Stephanie too was a victim. Margaret and Nicola McDonough were compassionate and generous people. Nicola was pursuing a career in social work, and Margaret fostered and adopted children who needed a good family. The kind of family who loved each other dearly and wanted to share their kindness with others. They wanted to help Michael. They wanted to help the fictitious Stephanie. And once they got to know Lindsay, they wanted to help her too. Ultimately, these were the admirable qualities that Lindsay chose to exploit, allowing her to manipulate an entire family through their good nature. Whenever you hear about con cases, it seems easy as an outsider to spot all the red flags, and it only seems natural to wonder what the perspective of the victim might have been as they were caught in the thick of it. Because unless you've been through it, you can't quite understand it. The judge who sentenced Lindsay used the word duped as one of the words to describe what Lindsay did to her victims. She duped them, tricked them, deceived them. Whatever word you choose, they all mean the same thing. But what those words can also do is insinuate blame on the part of the victim for being too naive or trusting. So why is that usually the first conclusion we jump to? Rather than placing the blame on the con, who used deception and manipulation to devastate individuals and their families. And because we have criminologists Dr. Sachs and Dr. Slosberg here, it would be great to hear their perspective on this case. Well, I think we should begin by looking at Lindsay. She's the originator of this scheme, right? She's the perpetrator. And I think her intentions in the beginning, you know, this is a catfishing scheme. She was catfishing for, quote, love. Why was she doing that? Because she had feelings, and a lot of other people in her position have feelings of loneliness, low self-esteem, and I think a lack of control over their romantic lives. And I think that's what is the impetus behind her crimes. Now, it starts off, you know, trying to establish a connection with another human being. But as we see, it unravels to be something so much more than that. And there is a fantasy world now that Lindsay's created, and she's part of it. And I think it's also, she knows what's happening, but she's so addicted to the feelings that she gets, you know, that kind of dopamine reward center. Every time she gets some positive attachment or feedback from Michael, she becomes more immersed in this world that she's created for herself in which she can establish social bonds, she can establish a relationship, but also, Tyler, she can establish control. And that's what happened as Lindsay began to, you know, form this relationship with Michael and also form relationships with his, you know, family members, she's taking back the control, I think, that she lacked in her own life. And I think it became 
almost unmanageable for her, but the addiction level is, I think, very, very strong. And I think that's what keeps the perpetration of these crimes going. You know, you could look at through the lens of personality disorders, and I'm sure that with an official diagnosis, you might find that she suffers some of the characteristics of either antisocial behavior or borderline personality. But I think the original impetus is really a simple one of trying to establish a physical connection or relationship with someone who she feels is otherwise unattainable to her. But unfortunately, as we know, this has great harms. And I think after you look at Lindsay's impetus, you should probably turn to the victims and how the victims in this case, you know, how were they, as you said, duped for so long or how did they become involved? And I think Amy probably can explain that a little bit better. Just like when trying to understand why an offender commits a crime, we're not explaining away their behavior. We're not giving excuses. It's just helping us understand. Similarly, when we talk about why someone may have become a victim in a certain crime, we're not blaming the victim by any means. We're just trying to understand how this happens. By understanding how things happen, we can prevent them in the future. So when we talk about the victims of catfishing generally, there are certain personality types that are often linked to falling prey to this type of behavior. And one has to do with attachment style. So we don't know much about, or I personally don't know much about Michael's upbringing. It seems as if he had a secure and loving family based on what we know about the other victims in this case, his mother and his sister. But it's possible that he had an anxious attachment style. And people who have this type of attachment style struggle with romantic ties. They might struggle with what we would consider real intimacy. And there may be a level of avoidance. So this type of relationship is very attractive to individuals that have some sort of attachment disorder. Online relationships can help them maintain a comfortable commitment level without getting too close. It's also possible that Michael was just very lonely and people with high levels of loneliness are more likely to fall prey to these types of schemes. In addition, he may have held some romanticized beliefs and ignored red flags. In other words, maybe he was a romantic. And once he started getting into this narrative of this relationship with this beautiful woman and, you know, they were they were exchanging lots of conversations, lots of back and forth. So it's you know, possible that he was ignoring things that were not consistent with this narrative of an ideal relationship. This is similar to the idea of what we know as confirmation bias. Now, confirmation bias says that we ignore things that don't confirm our beliefs. In other words, if Michael believed that he was in this loving relationship, any red flag or anything that would go against that, he would just simply ignore. Now, this is happening usually subconsciously, so we're not blaming him for this. Megan mentioned the dopamine hit that was perpetuating Lindsay's behavior. And we can really think about that from Michael's standpoint as well because there's this rewarding nature of human bonding. So the fact that Michael and Lindsay, they were having so much contact, he was constantly getting these dopamine hits, constant, constant, constant. So he's more likely to ignore skeptical behavior because it felt so good to him that he was in this romantic, loving relationship. And really, when you have such a dopamine hit, it could really overpower one's common sense. And maybe again, you go and you ignore these red flags. And some people simply are just more vulnerable and are more likely to get swept up again in this notion of this romantic relationship. Maybe we also kind of draw it together in the end. 
Because, you know, Tyler and Amy, interestingly, the cat Fisher and the victims seem to share a lot of the same qualities. You know, feelings of maybe low self-esteem, lack of connection to other human beings. So there's a lot of commonality between these two as well. And it might explain why they are kind of intrinsically drawn to each other. And we don't see that in a lot of crime types. When you look at the offender and the victim, you don't see as many similarities between the two. So I think catfishing is, as Megan pointed out, it's, a, it's an interesting relationship between the two. I want to thank Women in Crime for joining us in this episode. And if you want to hear more from them, check out their podcast. Women in Crime podcast is where true crime meets criminology. I'm Amy Sloshberg. And I'm Megan Sachs. My co-host and I are both criminologists and have spent our entire career studying and teaching about crime. We both have firsthand experience working with offenders and professionals in the criminal justice system. Each episode, you'll hear a new female-focused case or topic deconstructed by experts. We'll cover cases involving females as offenders and as victims, but more often than not, these two are one in the same. We also highlight the heroines of our criminal justice system, such as Kathleen Zellner, Sheila Wasaki, and Barbara Ray Venter, and interview subjects of famous cases including Denise Huskins and Lorena Bobbitt. You'll hear the stories of these women paired with the science that tells you where it all began. Crime is different for women. Listen and learn why on Women in Crime. You can listen to Women in Crime now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Women A-N-D Crime. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.